All right, Judges chapter 2 tonight. Judges chapter 2. If you ever uh, read ahead to try to get an idea of what I'm going to preach about before I do, and you know what chapter I'm going to be preaching on, if you were to guess what I was going to preach on tonight, you would definitely be wrong uh, about what I'm going to preach about. But I'm telling you, I believe tonight I'm going to use this chapter to show you something I think will help you a lot in your Bible study. I'm going to uh, really... Um, uh, these are, I'm going to give you some very helpful things that when it comes to Bible interpretation and uh, just having a b- better overall understanding of the Bible. So I'm going to, this is kind of just probably more of a lecture than a sermon tonight, just explaining some things, but hopefully it will be a help. And this is a, this chapter, as I was studying it, and as I've been studying the book of Judges, um, it just kind of got me scratching my head about a few things. And um, so some of what I'm going to be covering, it's stuff that uh, it's really helped me. Just uh, figuring these things out. And so in this chapter, uh, this is I, we're going to look at some things that will help us understand how to read our Bible. And one thing that is, that's neat about the Bible is there's all kinds of different type of writings that it contains. Because you know, while all of it, too, is the Word of God, we understand God did use men to write it. And these words are all also the words of those men. Often we're looking at direct quotes. Uh, from these men. Some books that we have are written like a history book uh, and tell stories, which is what Judges is. Judges is a history book. Some passages are direct quotes from individuals. Some passages are conversations between people. Some passages are showing direct quotes from God himself or from angels or uh, any number of people. And so while the Bible is all one book, we understand that it's also several books and uh, reading through the Bible will cause you to read a very diverse collection of writings. So you can't look at every passage of the Bible in the same way because they're doing different things. And so having said all that, it's important that whenever you're reading any book of the Bible, that you understand what kind of book you're reading. Not all scripture is used in the exact same way. So, for example, some scriptures are giving us very specific rules, like the Ten Commandments. Okay? The Ten Commandments, I mean, that's real clear. I think we all know how God feels about murder and adultery and all that stuff from reading the Ten Commandments. So, thou shalt not do it. That's, and we can get doctrine real easy from that. But there's also other passages where statements are just being made observations are being made about different things and they're not necessarily laws or rules. So for example, a a phrase that Paul says describing something about the Jews who are having a very hard time with the gospel. What did Paul say? He said, for the Jews require a sign. And what have people done? They've taken that line that's from the Bible and they've created it into a rule for Bible interpretation that you got to understand, you know, there's three types of people. you got Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. But it's like, and then, and then they'll say too that, you know, the tribulation is for the Jews because the Jews require a sign. And so they've got to see all these things in order for them to get saved. And, and so it sounds authoritative because of the fact that they used a line from the Bible. But no, Paul is just describing what their hangup is with the gospel. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks, their hang-up is they seek after wisdom. But what did Paul say? But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block. 
Why is it a stumbling block? Because the Jews require a sign. So the thing is, they're taking a phrase from the Bible, but are they not misusing it in a great way? Okay, now, you can't do that. You cannot make a rule where the Bible is not making a rule. Paul's just making a statement about the Jews explaining why they're struggling with this. And so every time you hear somebody use a phrase of Scripture, it doesn't mean what's about to come out of their mouth next is accurate. And if, if you don't, if you're not familiar with those scriptures, then you can fall for that kind of stuff. Because they even gave you a scripture reference too. But you don't, if you don't understand what's going on in that passage, you're going to have problems. And so just because you can find a statement that says something you like in the Bible, it doesn't mean you can use it however you want. Like, did you know that there's some lies in the Bible? The Bible's got a lot of lies in it. How about, you shall not surely die? That's a lie. And it's in the Bible. Okay, but what's it doing? It's quoting Satan. Okay, so it's not that the Bible is lying, but it's quoting Satan who was lying. And so the thing is, I don't have the right to go in, up to somebody and, you know, if they're doing something really stupid, say, you should not surely die. That's in the Bible. It's in book Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 says, you should not surely die. You know what? Every time somebody dies, that proves the Bible's wrong. Because the Bible says, you should not surely die. Hey, that, that was a lie. That Satan was telling Eve. In fact, if you look at it in context, every time somebody dies, it actually proves the Bible accurate. Because sin is what brings death. And so, you understand, a lot of this is common sense. But again, and that's like a real obvious example, but sometimes people, they'll take the obscure passages and they'll do things like that. Do you know there's some dumb things that are said in the Bible? There's some really dumb things that are said in the Bible. You want to know a dumb thing that's in the a statement that's in the Bible? That you hear all the time? Eat, drink, and be merry. It's in the Bible. Hey, you know, if I want to wear a t-shirt that says, eat, drink, and be merry, that's in the Bible. You know, the words of the Lord are pure words, right? You know, that, that's in the Bible. I can say that, eat, drink, and be merry. Hey, after church, let's eat, drink, and be merry. You know? But wait a minute. That statement's in the Bible, but who was it that said it? The rich fool. Who went and he, you know, he's, he said, he's, I'm going to build barns, I'm going to do all these things. And then what the Bible said, thou fool. Tonight thy soul shall be required. After he said, eat, drink, and be merry, God said, thou fool. So you know what? Eat, drink, and be merry, that's a biblical statement. But you know it's a dumb statement? Not because the Bible's dumb, but because the guy who it was quoting was a fool. So, again, you know, a little bit of study makes it pretty obvious, but do not, do people, is that not a common thing for people to say today? Eat, drink, and be merry? That's like a slogan that people have today. It's like, hey, and it's in the Bible, but go read it. The guy who said it was a fool. So we don't need to go off of that. So there's also things in the Bible too that are prophetic. But even prophetic scriptures, some of them are warnings that if you do this, this bad thing will happen. Or if you obey, this good thing will happen. Now that's prophetic. But do you understand that when it says, if you do this, this will happen, it doesn't mean that thing has to happen. Because if they disobey, then it's not going to happen. We understand that? But people will often go to, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they will read a prophecy, but one that is an if. One that is, uh, that has, you know, there's contingencies to. But then they will act like, nope, the Bible says it. Bible says it has to happen, and therefore, uh, you know, it's it's going to happen. But no, but no, that was a warning prophecy. 
there's other prophecies that are predictions. There are some prophecies where God is saying, this is going to happen. And nothing can change that. But not every prophecy is like that. There are things that are literally just telling us what happened, but are not in any way giving us instruction. And you better understand, understand that when reading through Judges, because there's a lot of weird, bad stuff that we're going to see in the book of Judges. We're going to, a lot of times in the Bible, especially in historical books, we see good people do really bad things. And the last thing we need to do is go say, it's okay to kill your daughter. Jephthah killed his daughter. No. Jephthah is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to talk about Jephthah eventually. I'm looking forward to getting to that chapter. But uh, you know, the Bible is just telling us what happened. I don't believe that's a good story. I believe that's bad what happened. You know, you're saying story in the Bible is bad. Yeah, it was a bad thing that happened. Just like Judges 19. That's a really bad story. Right? Now, the Bible's not bad. It's just telling us what happened. It's history. So, keep all these things in mind. Now, what I want to do, you know, I want us to uh, briefly go through this chapter and then explain what I believe about the book of Judges. And, and I believe, too, now, I can't get up here and dogmatically tell you this is true, but I think I can tell you roughly when it was written. I, I believe I can give you a good idea of when the book of Judges was written and why it was written. And I looked it up, too, in places online. Nobody really knows when the book of Judges was written. And I'm not up here telling you, I figured it all out, ladies and gentlemen. No, I'm going to give you a theory about when I believe it was likely to have been written. And, and you know, said I could be wrong, but um, we'll, we'll get to that. So remember, though, in chapter 1, it showed us the beginning of Israel's rebellion against God. Now, they haven't done much bad. It was only little bad stuff, Right? But they had started down a dark path of disobedience. Now we're in chapter 2, and in verse 1, it says, And the anger of the Lord came up from Gilgad of Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And let me tell you, God never broke His covenant with Israel. But you know what? Israel broke their covenant with God. And because of God's promise to Abraham... Okay, and this is what we're going to get to. Because of God's promise to Abraham, God made a new and a better covenant for the house of Israel. And, that, and, and let me just briefly tell you, I've talked about this before, the new and better covenant that God made for the house of Israel, because a covenant involves two people. One involved God and the nation of Israel, and they broke that covenant. They broke it. God didn't break it. They broke it. The new covenant God made, God made with one, uh, God made with one of the descendants of Israel, Jesus Christ. And Jesus will never break his covenant with God. God will never break his covenant with Jesus. And that, so the house of Israel can be saved if they will be in Christ. And guess what? He includes us too. He, he includes us too. So as long as we're in Christ, we're safe. But they did. They broke the covenant with God. And he's, ta- and he's talking about this right here in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and ye, shall make, and ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, 
but they shall be as thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare unto you. So God just told them here, I'm not going to drive them out because of this. Because you didn't obey me, I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to be thorns in your sides. They're going to be a snare. You're going to follow their gods. They're going to get you in all kinds of trouble. And because God keeps his promises, God always keeps his promises, ladies and gentlemen. The dispensationalists are always wanting to tell us how God keeps his promises. And like that's supposed to mean something to us against what we say about Israel. No, I believe what I believe about Israel because God does actually keep his promises. All of them, not just your cherry picked promises. He keeps all of his promises. And because God keeps his promises to Israel, Israel was in big trouble. Now, God is not going to full now because of their disobedience. God is not going to fully drive them out and they will have battles in the future that they would not have had if they would have obeyed. And so we cannot just cherry pick the promises of God like the dispensationalists do. We cannot do that. We can't ignore the rest of the scriptures and try to make God out to be a liar, which is what they are doing. Not us. They accuse us of that. And I don't like doing that accusation. But if they're going to accuse us of making God out to be a liar, I'll go as far as say, no, if anybody's doing it, you are. Because we believe God keeps all his promises. And so here's an example of how they do this with scriptures. Okay. In Exodus 21, uh, 23, in verse 23, look what it says here. And this is what you can do with any, any promise that they want to go cherry pick. Okay? If you would actually do the same thing that I'm going to do here with Exodus, you'll be able to see where they go wrong. But it says, For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. God said he's going to do it, ladies and gentlemen. No matter what happens, God has to drive them out and he has to cut them off because God keeps his promises, right? Well, you know, did God change or break his promise here? Because God says, and said in Judges, I'm not going to do it. Did God change his mind? Oh boy, you know, you, you replacement people that you know, think that God replaced Israel, you better hope he doesn't take away your salvation and change his mind about that too. No, listen, you got to look at everything God said. Because look what it says in verse 20 of Exodus 23. And this is an obvious example. But again, all the examples, you can do the same thing. Read a little before, read a little after. You'll see how they're cherry picking. It says, Behold, I send mine angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. And who is it talking to him in Judges? It's an angel talking to him, right? And he says, Beware of him, obey his voice, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So notice, folks, there was an if in there. There was an if. You can't just isolate the one verse and then say, God has to do this. No matter what, this has to be done or God broke his promise to Israel. No, God said, I will do this if you obey. And I'm telling you, across the board, that is what they do. They, do, they ignore the ifs. They always ignore it. They'll, they'll read the part where God said he's going to do something and then they say, that has to happen no matter what. No, it does not. No, it does not. Some prophecies are warnings. Or, or there are even challenges. If you do this, I'll do this. They're not all just predicting the future. 
And so it says in verse 24, Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And ye shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send fear before thee, and I will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies to turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river. And I will do, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. So folks, this is what the angel was referring to when he's calling them out. God promised them, I will do all these things for you, but it's if you obey me. And what did they do? They disobeyed him and they made leagues with the people of that land. They did exactly what God said not to do. He said, I don't see why that's such a big deal because God said, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. You're going to follow their gods. And guess what we're going to see in the book of Judges? We're going to see them follow their gods, just like God said. So God obviously here when he does not drive them out is keeping his promise and it's very important for under for israel to understand this it was very important when the book of judges was written that israel be reminded of this because i believe they were at a very crucial point in their history so verse 4, and it came to pass when the angel of the lord spake these words unto all the children of israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept and they called the name of that place, Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And so we see very clearly that God was where Israel's power was at. Their disobedience resulted in them fighting battles many times in their own power. And the victories that they did have many times just weren't that great. And sometimes they had defeats. And it was because they were doing many things in their own power. And it says when Joshua had let the people go... The children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. Okay? Now, I want you to pay attention to this because now all of a sudden it looks like Joshua is still on the scene. But I'm going, to show, I'm going to show you, no, Joshua's already dead. It's very important that we understand what this chapter is doing. This is, this is going to help to get a hold of this. So it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath, Herez, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill, Gaish. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. So when you're reading this passage, it's easy to think that what we saw in the previous chapter happened during the life of Joshua, but it didn't. Chapter 1 shows us the details of their disobedience. And what Judges chapter 2 is, what this chapter is, is it's basically a summary of what happened over many years, over the entire period of the Judges. And so, in fact, we're going to see this chapter is going to end, in reality, at the end of the time of Judges, right before the time of Kings. 
And so, and then what happens in chapter 3 through the rest of it is it's going back and giving us the detail of their fall. So basically chapter 2, it's, it's uh, the to overview of chapter 2, it's saying Israel after Joshua was gone disobeyed God. They started serving other gods. They did all kinds of horrible things. And every man got to a point where every man just did that which was right in his own eyes until there was until a king came. And so that's how chapter 2 ends. And then chapter 3 goes into the details and tells us specific stories showing the decline and the fall of Israel. So Judges is not a completely chronological book. So keep that in mind. So it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And again, this is just very general. All of this has not happened. When we get to chapter 3, we're not to the point yet where they've served Balaam. This is just saying, in this time of the judges, this book is not being written as these events happen. This time is long come and gone. And it's just giving us their history of what happened in the time of Judges. In the time of Judges, they started serving Balaam. It says, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people which were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them, and sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, they were greatly distressed. So the stories we see going on in the book of Samson, or in the book of Samson, but during the time of Samson, that was God keeping his promise to him. When we see them being defeated, that's God keeping his promise to him. That's what this is explaining. It's just not going into great detail yet. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges like Samson, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them, like Jephthah, like Gideon. And they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way when their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And one thing we're going to see, the judge would come, get them straightened out, and then you know what? They'd forsake the Lord again. And then they'd get in trouble again. And then a judge would straighten them out. And then they'd forsake the Lord again. That's what we're going to see through the whole book. It gets frustrating. Uh, anybody anybody me get mad when you're reading the book of Judges? I just get mad. It's like, what is wrong with these people? But it says, when the Lord raised them up, judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and have not hearkened unto my voice, I will also not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. And so now where we are, you know, where are we chronologically when we look at judges? We're basically at the end. 
as far as timelines go, we're now at the end of the book of Judges. This is how it's going to end. It's basically telling us what the story is going to be before it tells us the story. That's kind of what we're seeing here. You, you, so it's like, basically, we're going to tell you a really bad story about Israel just messing up, forsaking God, God delivering them, and then messing up again. And then in chapter 3 and on, it goes on to give us the details. And so Judges 21-25, at the end of the book of Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so we can tell from that last verse, this book was not written as these events unfolded. This book was probably written much later. I believe it was written much later. I personally think, too, it was written somewhere around the time, probably, and this is, this is my opinion, right? I'm, I'm giving you my opinion here, but I'm going to show you why I believe this. I believe that this book was probably written around the time of the Babylonian exile. Probably right before they came back to the land. Around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay? And that's my opinion. I'm going to tell you why. Because what we're going to do, we're going to kind of, you know, I'm always encouraging people to like zoom out and try to look at the big picture. We're really going to zoom out tonight and to try to understand what's going on in our Bible. But I do, so probably, so it was probably either before or shortly after that time. And so, Get your Bibles ready to turn to Daniel chapter 9, but also before you, uh, maybe mark Daniel 9, but then I want you to turn to the front of your Bible where it shows a list of the books of the Bible. So I want to I illustrate something to you, okay? It's something about how the Bible is laid out. So first off, we have Genesis through Deuteronomy known as the Pentateuch, right? The books of Moses. It's very obvious from reading those that those were written, all of those books were, would have been written probably at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, right before they cross over to Jordan, right before Moses dies. They go, and that's when they uh, got those books together. And then, and we can tell that from some of the things it says in there. But then, and so those books are written, and I talk about this a lot when going through Genesis. You can tell it was written in a way, and in a, in a perspective of a people who were about to go into a land that was promised to them, to a specific generation. We talk a lot about that when going through Genesis. But then Joshua through Esther, those are known as the books of history. And I think these books probably, based on just kind of, when you zoom out and you look at, and you, you kind of do an overview of them, I think it's very likely they were all written pretty close to the same time and most of them were probably put together by the same person, that, uh, in, in my opinion. I do think the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were probably written by someone else, um, just because First and Second Kings focus mainly on the Northern Kingdoms, where First and Second Chronicles, while they'll reference the Northern Kingdoms, they mainly focus on the Southern Kingdoms. So I think those were obviously written by different people, but they were probably put together around the same time. I think two books like Ruth and Esther uh, were probably also exceptions as far as when they were written and who wrote them. Um, I, I, you know, they're definitely um, not so much historical as just telling us specific stories um, in, in the Bible during different times. And so I couldn't guess, you know, when the book of Ruth was written. Uh, you know, Esther probably was written somewhere around the time 
uh, everything happened. But the, uh, but anyway, um, when we look at First and Second Kings, and First or, or like Second Kings and Second Chronicles, both of those books end with the Babylonian captivity. That's when both of those books are written. They were written. And so what I think we're seeing here is we have Joshua basically giving us the history of Israel when they crossed the Jordan River and they inherited the land. And then, I'm assuming, during the time of the Babylonian captivity, they're giving us the history of the time of the judges. And so the book of Judges, it is. It's just giving us that history during that era, hundreds of years ago. And it's telling us these stories about what happened and how Israel fell. And it's telling us these very stories for a reason. It's very important, too, that everybody understands why it's telling these specific stories. And so also during that time around the Babylonian captivity, they tell us the story of the kings. So we got the history of the, the judges. We got the history of the kings. And then that ends um, at the Babylonian captivity, which ended that time of the kings. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, when we read those books, those books are after at the end of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, after the Medes and Persians allowed them, and Cyrus specifically, allowed them to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay? Now, here's what a lot of people do not understand. People just are not talking about this in your dispensational IFB world. But folks, those stories are so significant because when they came back to the land, that was a major fulfillment of a bunch of prophecies in Jeremiah and other places. But also, they went back there with a very specific purpose. There was even changes that had been made. That, uh, things that God had wanted to do. And we're not going to have time to get into all of that. But Ezra and Nehemiah is showing the fulfillment of those prophecies about the restoration of Israel. Now, sadly, most people read a lot of passages about the restoration of Israel like none of it's happened. It's like, no, Israel was restored. They got, they got restored to their land. Yeah, but I don't see all these wonderful things happening. I know, and there, there's a reason for that. And it's because those prophecies you're reading there, guess what, they have ifs in there. And you're all ignoring those things. And, and, and they don't understand the result. It would, it, it's like reading the prophecy in Exodus where God said, I'm going to drive them out. And, it, and if you ignore the rest of it, and it's like, well, when did this happen? Well, it didn't happen because there was an if in there. We need to understand these things. So, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're about to return to Israel, to their land, showing the fulfillment. And then we see them beginning the work that they have been given to do by God, specifically to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah, who would deliver them from their enemies in less than 500 years based on a prophecy given by Daniel. Daniel's uh, 70-week prophecy that he gave, it was right during this time, right, at the, right after the Babylonian captivity. We're going to see that here in just a second. And so I believe Daniel 9 is, one of the, is the best passage in the Bible to show us a historical transition that was going on that's so important that we understand this when we're reading our Bible and especially when studying Bible prophecy. So understand when Israel was familiar, you know, uh, that while Israel was familiar with all the stories of the judges, they would have known these stories. Okay, listen, if judges wasn't written until 
after the Babylonian captivity or around the time of the Babylonian captivity, like I believe, and I, I'm assuming. Okay? Where did they get, you know, how did they get that information? Obviously, they had historical sources. They had stories that had been passed down. But I, I'm telling you, I believe the story of the judges, the stories of the kings were given around this time for a very, very specific reason that people are just ignoring. And so, uh, we need to understand that as a nation, I don't believe they understood, I believe they forgot why they, why they were being judged. Remember Josiah, when he was king, he was king of Israel. He had been king for several years. And remember how they went to the temple and they found the book? And then they read it to him, and he's like, we're in trouble. And, and you know what he figured out when they read the book? That they were going to be taken captive. Judgment was coming. Israel had forgotten. Israel did not know why they were going through all the things they were going through. They didn't know why judgment was coming. And the judgment was supposed to come in Josiah's day, but he got right and God stalled the judgment off because of that. But it still came. But Israel as a nation had forgotten why they were in trouble. And so understand, and, you, and we can see examples of this when we're reading the prophecies of the time when they were in exile. But when Israel got taken captive, they're calling on the Lord. They're wondering, why is this going on? Why is this happening? And you know what God did? God's showing them why it happened. And I believe that's what these books are. God, is giving, God gave these during a time, showing Israel, letting Israel know, you guys want to know why you're in captivity right now? Here's why. Let's go back to the time of Judges when you broke my covenant. And I still gave you time to repent. I was going to see what you were going to do with what I had given you. But you know what? You kept forsaking me. You kept serving Baal. You kept getting away from me. And they said, you know what? Y'all demanded a king. You guys said, well, you know what? We'll be fine if we have a king like the other nations. So you know what I did? I gave you a king. And I put my blessing on that king. And the first one wasn't that great. I gave you who you wanted, but then I replaced him. And I gave you who I wanted. I gave you David. And he did pretty good for a while. And Solomon did pretty good for a while. But you know what you guys did? Y'all forsook the Lord. Y'all just kept on disobeying me. You never, ever followed my command to let the land rest on the seventh year. For 70 Sabbath years, you all skipped. You never followed that. Y'all didn't think it was a big deal. And so you know what? That's why you had 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Folks, they did not understand this when they went into captivity. But the prophets figured it out. The prophets wrote about it. But even Daniel didn't fully understand it at first until he read Jeremiah. As he read Jeremiah, all of a sudden he understands the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. All of a sudden he gets it that this is exactly what God said was going to happen. But I don't believe they had, they didn't have the books of Judges yet. And so the thing is, it was probably somewhere around that time when it was written. Maybe even a little bit after that. You know, whenever it was written, when, whenever Judges through Kings and all that was written, I believe it was after they had figured out what they had done wrong, why they had gone into captivity. And it's given this history as a testimony to Israel, this is why you're in the mess that you're in. This is why all these terrible things happen to you. And so when we get to Daniel 9, Daniel is one of many prophets that is going to show us, okay, we now know why we got in trouble. We broke God's covenant. But you know what else God revealed to Jeremiah? That he was going to bring a new covenant. 
Y'all messed up the first one, but I'm going to bring in a new and better covenant. A Messiah is going to come and he's going to deliver you. And he's going to take away your sins. He's going to remove those things. God told Israel, I'm going to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. A lot of dispensationalists sing those songs about God removing the sins of the east is the west about themselves. And they should be. But that was a promise God made to Israel. And so Daniel is one of these prophets that understands that, that now that Israel has been restored to their land, let me just give you a brief overview of what they were supposed to do. You know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to rebuild their temple. They were supposed to start doing the sacrifices again. They were supposed to be being a light to the nations. They were supposed to be uh, allowing Gentiles and strangers to come and to follow those Sabbaths and to become one of the tribes and and become a part of what God was doing in Israel. That was what God had told them to do. And they were supposed to do these things. They were supposed to follow the Lord. All right, you better follow my commands this time. And then understand when, when, uh, that eventually I'm going to send the Messiah. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to purify the sons of Levi. And they're going to offer an acceptable sacrifice like in the days of old. And he's going to take away your sins. And he's going to go and he's going to defeat your enemies. And he's going to fulfill all these promises that I made to your fathers. And so that's what Daniel is all about. Is it's a prophecy showing us what the Messiah that about the Messiah is going to come. And so Israel had a job to do. And so when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, you know what we're reading about? We're reading about them rebuilding the temple. Now, they weren't doing a very good job on that either. At first, they weren't doing anything. God had to send Haggai and Zechariah to come and tell these people, hey, I brought you back to the land. Get to work. And then they did. They finally got to work. They didn't do a very good job. It wasn't like it was before. And they did. They just did a horrible job. You read um, Book of Malachi. Several years after that, Israel is doing a terrible job. You go read the historical books that aren't in the Bible. They were doing terrible during the Greek Empire. They let the lamp go out again. Temple got desecrated during that time. But then, you know what? They ended up getting things back. The Romans were allowing them to do their thing. And then guess what? The Messiah came, just like was prophesied. And what did they do? They killed him. They continued their history of rejecting God. They killed a messenger. They killed John the Baptist. But let's let's go to Daniel 9, because it's so important we understand this. All these things that we're about to read, when we're when we go through Judges, it is God is showing Israel what they did wrong and why they ended up being judged, and how they broke His covenant, and why God was going to have to bring in a new covenant. That's what that's what the book of Judges is. And so in Daniel 9 verse 1 it says, "In the year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes." which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. You know, and I almost wonder, like, what were those books that he read? Was it Judges through Second Chronicles? I kind of doubt it. It was probably the regular history books. But, you know, I read that too when Daniel's like, you know, I understood and based on what we're going to read here, if I was going to just take a guess at who wrote those books or who put them together, I kind of think it could have been Daniel. I don't know. Hey, I'm not, not making a claim. I'm just throwing out a guess. Your guess is as good as mine. But it says in, uh, so it says in verse 3, um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 2 again. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he 
talking about God, would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Who's going to cause the desolations of Jerusalem? God is. Why? As judgment, as punishment. And God revealed through Jeremiah that He, God, would accomplish these things. And we understand, too, that these are referring to weeks of years. God is punishing Israel. Israel still has judgment coming for breaking the covenant with God. They are going to be dealing with these desolations. They will be dealing with this judgment until the Messiah comes and takes away their sins. But he's, telling, he's letting them know the Messiah is going to come and take away your sins. And so in verse 3, And I will set my face in the Lord to seek my prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from Thy precepts and from Thy judgment. Daniel gets it. And he is seeking mercy for Jerusalem's sake. Because who's coming after Jerusalem? Antiochus Epiphanes? Rome? Titus? Or God? God's coming after Jerusalem. Why? Because God's judging them. Neither have we hearkened unto the servants, the prophet, thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our king, our princes, and our fathers, and to the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee. But unto us confusion of faces as it is this day, to the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, unto all Israel that are near, and that are far off through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. And listen, Daniel's not just making a fancy prayer. Oh, we're just such terrible people. No, he's, he's getting specific. This is from the heart. This is legit. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed Thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey Thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us. Watch this. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, which because we have sinned against Him. Now, what is this oath that is written in the law of Moses? Another promise of God that the dispensational crowd, the pro-Israel crowd, wants to ignore. And we're not going to read through all of it, but Deuteronomy chapter 28 is where we get this oath. And it says, and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. God's going to set him on high above all nations of the earth. It says it right there in the Bible. If... You obey, I'll do that. This is what he said. And these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city. Blessed shalt thou be in the field. And he goes on to say, blessed shall be all over the place. But it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments and the statutes which I command thee this day that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city. Cursed shalt thou be in the field. And he goes on to say, you'll be cursed everywhere. Verse 35, the Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs and with a sore botch that cannot be healed. From the sole of thy foot, the top of thy head, who's going to smite him? God's going to do it. The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee into a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have 
have known. And there thou shalt serve other gods. Wood and stone. Verse 49. And the Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far and from the end of the earth as swift as the eagle flieth. A nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. A nation of fierce countenance which shall not regard the person of the old nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil or the increase of thy kind or the flocks of thy sheep until he have destroyed thee. Now, God said this, he that's coming for you, he said, I'm sending him. I'm doing it. God even, and this was, God even referred to Nebuchadnezzar as his servant in one place in the Bible. Oh, man, he was touching God's anointed, God's people. I know. God wanted them to because God, God was punishing them. So Daniel, he figures it out. Hey, you know what happened in the last 70 years? Exactly what God said was going to happen. You know why? Because God keeps his promises. Good and bad. So verse, so verse 12 of Daniel 9, And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us, and against our judges, that judges by bringing up upon us great evil for unto the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. And it is written in the law of Moses that all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. And so, I'm not going to read the rest of this prayer, but Daniel goes and just, he's basically asking forgiveness. He's saying, Lord, don't let this come. Lord, please don't let what you promised come on Jerusalem. And you know what God said? It was a good prayer. I mean, Daniel prayed it good. God loved Daniel. And Daniel, man, he said a prayer that would have them all crying at a camp meeting. But you know what? Verse 20 says, and while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, while I was speaking my prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision in the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. He's like, I'm here because you're very loved, Daniel. God loves you and God heard your prayer and I'm here. But God said no. That's basically what he told him. And you know what he said? Seventy weeks are determined. That's what, that's what this is all about, folks. Everybody, everybody ignores Daniel 9 verses 1 through 23 and everyone starts 24. You go listen to any prophecy message, they're going to start in verse 24. What is going on here? Jerusalem is come, or uh, judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. God is going to punish them. God is going to deal with them. God's not done punishing Israel. God is going to, they are going to deal with desolations until the Messiah comes who will take away their sins and bring in a new and better covenant. That's what he's prophesying. And so, this is bad in the sense that you guys have got some rough days ahead of you, but it's, it's going to end good. And so he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Is this talking about a worldwide tribulation or is this talking about something in Jerusalem, ladies and gentlemen? Lose your Daniel 70th week charts or at least black that part out. Okay, When you're reading about Revelation, it's talking about global destruction and tribulation. That is not what Daniel's 70th week is about. It's about Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, 
to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for the iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, which was just about to come, unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be at the flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, shall he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Who is the he that has been talking about the entire chapter that's going to bring judgment on Jerusalem? The entire chapter that he has been God is the one that's going to do it. God is going to do this. God is going to bring this on you like he promised in his oath. But notice too, though, like in Jeremiah that Daniel refers to, he was also going to bring a new covenant, a new and better covenant. And he's going to confirm that covenant for a week. And in the midst of the week, he's going to cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And what happened after Jesus' three and a half years of ministry? After he was cut off, after he died on the cross, what immediately happens? The veil of the temple is rent. You know why? Because the old covenant is done. The old covenant has passed away. And he is bringing in a new and better covenant. That's what's going on. Now, the second, the, the next three and a half years, was that during the, was that the three and a half year period where things were focused in Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit is revealing? Or is it something that's in, you know, exclusively the future? You know, I personally think it already happened. I think the three and a half years, the 70th week already happened. It was all in Jerusalem. Some people think it was during the seven year, you know, Roman war. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on that. Here's why I have a strong opinion. Jesus confirmed the covenant. The covenant he's talking about is the new covenant, the one promised in the book of Jeremiah, the one that Israel needed to rebuild this temple to prepare, get ready for the Messiah who was going to come and bring in a new and better covenant. You know why? Because they broke their old covenant. That's what's going on. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days come, say, Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write them in their hearts, and I will be, uh, be their God, and they shall be my people. And I don't have time to address retardation that says that is still to come. But Hebrews shows us that it has, in fact, in fact already come. I'm not even going to take time to get into that. But the book's of Ezra and Nehemiah are the historical books showing Israel attempting to do what the prophets had told them to do, preparing for the coming of the Messiah. But what happened? When, they, the, when God sent the final pro prophet, Malachi, if you want to say, that I'm going to send my messenger before the Messiah comes. And then we have 400 years of silence while Israel deals with the judgment and the desolations that God was putting on them. But then what did God do? You know what he did? He kept his promise and the Messiah showed up. First John the Baptist showed up and you know what? What did the Jews do with them? They killed him. And then what did they do with the Messiah? With Jesus? They killed him. 
But you know what? God still wasn't done. You know what he did? He filled the apostles with the Holy Spirit and he had them preach with great power to Israel during Pentecost. And what did Peter say when Peter was preaching? Because people say, oh, when he takes away their sins, that's something that's happening in the future. Well, somebody needed to tell Peter that because Peter in Acts 3.26 says, Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. What everyone is ignoring in Rucktard land is they're ignoring the fact that to get in on this new covenant, you have to be in Christ. Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is that Messiah. And when you are in Christ, you're in, you're good, you're sealed, you're protected in that new and that better covenant. And it has already come. And now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And Israel for the last 2,000 years, I mean, first off, they don't even exist. They were destroyed. They were wiped out. That nation is gone. Okay, The synagogue of Satan does not count. But somebody, if they think they descend from them, and maybe even if they do descend from them, you know what they need to do? They need to recognize we've been all concluded in unrighteousness. And God's going to have, so God can have mercy upon all. And you know what they need to do? They need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But understand... But I want you to get the main thing I want you to get from this. The purpose of the book of Judges is it was written showing Israel. Here's why you're why you've been judged. Here's why you've been judged. Here's why we have to have a new and a better covenant. Now, God's restored us back to the land. Cyrus has given us permission to build a temple. Let's try to get it right this time. Let's see if we can't do what God said to do. And then let's get through these desolations. Let's get through this horrible time. And then the Messiah will come and take away our sins. And again, we know the end of that story. Still didn't work out good for him. He said, well, what's left for Israel? Well, uh, what's left for any descendants, any who still claims to be of that, uh, when the husbandman returns, or the master of the house returns, he's going to say, bring those before me that would not that I should reign over them and slay them before me. Now, that's a little bit different than how the dispensationalists teach it, but they're wrong. And so hopefully this kind of helps you understand, you know, it was a good overview of the Bible that will help you in your reading of the scripture. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help uh, to everybody. I pray, Lord, that it just uh, helped all, everyone to have just a better understanding of your word, how it's laid out, why it's there, what exactly we're reading. And I pray, Lord, you'll help us to be honest in our reading of the scriptures that we'll get the messages that we're supposed to get and uh, you'll help us to learn from them and uh, uh, rightly divide the word. In your name we pray. Amen.